Hello, ACAC family. My name is Ross Owens. I am one of the administrative pastors here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church. And I had to make sure that I started with that kind of introduction because I wanted to make sure you guys did not think Pastor Rock left for vacation, then came back looking like this. <laughs> he wished he could be this good looking. <laughs> Please don't tell him I said that. Hey, this week we're going to review a few very familiar scriptures from the book of Ephesians, which was a letter written while imprisoned by the Apostle Paul sometime around 60 to 62 AD. And he wrote it to encourage believers to walk as faithful followers of Christ and to serve in unity and love in the midst of persecution. Now, the first chapter is a beautiful introduction to how believers have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Paul writes how they've been adopted to sonship, chosen, forgiven, and redeemed. And he states that believers are marked with the seal and given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for their inheritance. The second chapter of Ephesians starts with a reminder of God's grace and love for believers and that even while they were dead, Christ made them alive in him. Now, in the third chapter, Paul opens with, a, with the mystery Christ made known through the revelation of the Spirit of God. And starting in verse 6, Paul explains what that mystery is, which was the reconciliation of the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles to one another and their reconciliation to God. Now, Paul concludes that chapter and the first part of Ephesians with the doxology. Now, doxology is a word of glory to God. It's a praise or it's worship given to God. And today we're going to look at what may have prompted Paul to include the words in his doxology after this particular portion of Scripture. Because at first blush, it may seem a little out of place. But after careful examination, it becomes very clear that our lack of understanding of God's word is not a result of God's lack of clarity, but an opportunity for deeper revelation. So our scripture reading is found in the third chapter of Ephesians, starting with verse number 20, and it reads, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The title of today's sermon is Pursuing Reconciliation. Let us all pray. Dear Heavenly Father, my prayer is that I fully decrease so that your power and your spirit can increase. And Lord, I pray that your spirit move throughout this church and even the people viewing online and allow their hearts to be open to receive the manna that you have coming from heaven. So Lord, I pray that someone's soul be touched today and that your saving power goes forth and heals the brokenhearted and saves a broken soul. God, we don't have the ability to do it, but you do. So we put our trust and our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we dive into the book of Ephesians, may the Lord be with you. 
In the first part of this doxology, Paul informs the church that there is no way to measure the power of God by stating, God can do exceedingly abundantly. Now note, there's no comma between these words. It's not exceedingly, comma, abundantly. It's exceedingly abundantly. And it's important to make that distinction because reciting the words together provides the emphasis Paul wanted to communicate. See, exceedingly means to an extreme or unusual degree. And abundantly is defined as excessive, overflowing, and over and above. So when we put these two definitions together, Paul is stating that to an extreme or unusual degree, God can do immeasurably over and above all that we can ask or think. See, it's important to realize that God's ability to answer our prayers far exceeds our ability to ask. See, this means that there is no problem that God cannot solve. There's no sickness that he cannot heal. There's no miracle too hard for God to perform and no prayer which God cannot answer. And most of all, there's no sin that is too great for God to forgive. Whatever it is that man can ask, think, experience, or even create, God can handle it. Why? Because there is nothing too hard for God. Now, to be clear, there are things that God chooses not to do, such as lie, fail, stop loving, change, and be tempted. And also, he will not override someone else's will. He won't force someone to do his will. He will not turn someone away that comes to him in faith, nor will he leave us nor forsake us. And most importantly, when we as be, uh, believers, as, as far as us as believers, God chooses not to remember our sins. See, the boundaries that God places upon himself don't minimize him or his power, but they magnify his love toward us. Let me explain that. See, the fact that God chooses not to do these things means that, doesn't mean that he's limited it means that he loves us so much that he would never do anything that would cause us to question his character or his love. Because it doesn't benefit God not to lie, but it benefits us. It doesn't benefit God to stop loving. It benefits us. And there's no one who benefits more from God's self-imposed restrictions than God's people. See, Paul goes on to mention how exceedingly abundantly is administered by stating it's according to the power that worketh in us. See, the Holy Spirit possesses a dynamite-like power that works within believers to blast out anything that's not like God. And the Holy Spirit possesses this, this power and gives us access to it so that we as his children, as believers, can, can tap into this power so that we can do what he has called us to do. And see, he uses his power in us so that he can break us and then ultimately remake us. And the more we get self out of the way and yield our will to his the more he is able to pour himself out through us and the more he is able to transform our lives. And this power that we have through the power of the Holy Spirit is always available and it's always active. So with that said, it raises the question, if through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
God can use us to do immeasurably above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Why are there times that Christians feel powerless? Does God's power become weak? Does the power of God that is within us get to the point like they're old batteries in a flashlight? And when, they're time, when it's time to use it, our spirit becomes dim. Let me be very clear. God is not the problem. God is never the problem. The problem is us. See, as Christians, we become so laxed and easily satisfied in our relationship with God that we limit his power in our lives. We become too comfortable with the powerless life to the point that we think that this powerless living is normal. See, when the Christians become so laxed in their pursuit of God, they succumb to arrested development. Now, arrested development has had multiple meanings over the years. However, its basic meaning is a stoppage of physical development, and in our case, spiritual development. It's when someone has the appearance and the opportunity for growth, but they become stagnated. See, it's like a time when I was in middle school, um, what they used to do was have an award ceremony right before they would give out your grades. And so a note was sent home saying that, hey, Ross is going to receive an award. Invite your parents, invite your friends, and invite your neighbors. And I was like, yes, I'm finally getting an award. <laughs> Get to the point, the ceremony comes, and I receive, with pride, an award for perfect attendance. But then the next day, I got my report card. <laughs> and I had a D. So my mother looked at me with that stank eye. She said, boy, how can you go to school every single day? You don't miss a day of school and you get a D on your report card. I said, well, mom, it's simple. Although I was present, I didn't listen to the teacher. And see, everything was fine and dandy because I really wasn't a cut-up. Like, I've never been suspended. I wasn't bad. I wasn't sent to the office. I was one of those quiet class clowns. So everything was fine and dandy until it came time for the test. And when the test came, I wasn't as prepared as I should have been if I would have just listened to the teacher. See, all the knowledge was in front of me but my attention was diluted with things that were not necessary. So when the test came, I wasn't prepared. And see, this thing isn't only uh, isolated to, to us as Christians. See, um, if we're not careful, the same thing can be done in our relationship with God. And, and, and it's not only um, Christians who have this uh, problem, even the disciples ran into this situation. But see, let me tell you this. Just because you're in church every Sunday doesn't mean you're getting what you need to draw closer to the Lord. And if you're not drawing closer to the Lord, we limit that ability to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. See, look, the Spirit and the power is available. And God wants us to make ourselves available so that we can use it. Why? so that we can be a blessing to other people. See, it takes this power of God for us to truly lead people in a fallen society. 
And when we do it in our own strength, we mess things up. And although God doesn't need us, he uses us as tools to accomplish his will, which is why I love what Dr. Adrian Rogers says when he says, see, we cannot do it without him and God will not do it without us. See, he wants to use us to draw other people to his heart, but we fall short if we don't do what the teacher tells us to do. Now, like I said before, we are not the only ones that succumbs to this type of neglect of the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples ran into the exact same issue. See, Jesus had given them the authority and he had sent them out in pairs to cast out devils, to anoint with oil, and to heal the sick. And while they were out, they preached the gospel and people gave their life to Christ. Then one day, a father brought his son to the disciples to be healed because the little boy was possessed with the demon that made him mute. And in their minds, the disciples probably thought, look, we've been out spreading the gospel for months. I have this power. We've been doing this for weeks. We are all right. We have been there and done that. Father, go get your son. However, their attempt to reactivate that same power that they once had, had failed and they were unable to deliver the boy. And what made matters worse is that the scribes were, were ridiculing them and they were teasing them because they thought these people were the, were the Christ-like folk. But when they tried to execute that power, they failed. Let me tell you something. As believers, when we do God's work, people are watching us. And they are looking at every move we, move we make and everything that we say. And when we don't tap into that power to do what God wants us to do, we turn people off and we lose our witness. And it got to the point that the disciples went to Jesus when they got alone and, and said, Jesus, what happened? Why isn't it that we were not able to do the very same things that we were once able to do? And Jesus replied that the enemy that they were up against could only be defeated with prayer and fasting. See, I like the way Richard Blackaby put it when he said, the first place God points to when we face difficulty is our prayer life. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to continue in prayer and align ourselves daily with the Holy Spirit so that we can activate his power that is working in us. That's why all through scripture, we are called to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible tells us to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. It talks about the anointing of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. See, these references focus on us having a right relationship with the Holy Spirit so that we can accomplish God's will. And look, let's be honest. Spiritual maturity, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen quickly, and it doesn't happen without discipline. See, it's a process of sanctification that results in a lifestyle that leads us to be more like Christ. And it leads us from desiring to please the flesh to desiring to please Christ. That's why I agree with Mark Batterson when he says, a sign of spiritual maturity is becoming less self-conscious and more Christ-conscious. 
See, the more I grow in Christ, the less I want to be like me and the more I want to be like him. And the more I pursue him, the more I'm able to do what he wants me to do. See, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to perform miracles. The Bible tells us that those signs will follow them that believe. Oftentimes, we as Christians, we're going out looking for miracles, but if we just align ourselves with the Holy Spirit, the miracles will follow us. And we'll see that the more he works through us, the more we serve others. Because the more we serve others, the more Christ-conscious and Christ-like we become. Why? Because, be, because serving others allows us to discover and develop our spiritual gifts. And serving others allows us to experience miracles. And serving others allows us to experience the joy and peace that only comes through obedience. The bottom line is serving others helps us to be like Christ. But let's not forget the other key to being Christ-like. See, Jesus said, I come to seek and save those which are lost. And I cannot seek and save the lost if the only person that I care about is me. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that we don't take care of ourselves. I am a firm believer of soul care. I am a firm believer of spending intimate time with the Lord and making sure that I put on my oxygen mask before I help someone else. But let me tell you what I am saying. I'm suggesting that if you live your life as if everything is about you, you will be left with just that. Just you. An important part of being Christ conscious is using the power of the Holy Spirit to point people to Christ. So now that we have a more clear understanding of this particular portion of the doxology, we see it's no coincidence that it falls after Paul's understanding of the mystery of God, which was the reconciliation of two enemies to each other and their reconciliation to Christ. See, Paul understood that there's no possible explanation for two religions, nationalities, and cultures to be enemies on day one than come together to serve God the next. See, the Jews went from calling the Gentile dogs to calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. And he knew that it had to be the power of the Holy Spirit because man does not have the capability nor the desire in most cases to do reconciliation on our own. So when God revealed to Paul that reconciliation, the reconciliation which took place resulted in Jews and Gentiles being joint heirs, joint members of the body, and joint partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel, Paul busted out his pen, said this had to be God, and when he continued to write, he said now unto him, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Because it makes no sense for Jews and Gentiles to coexist and to coexist with God. See, I can imagine that it blew Paul's mind to see these two groups not only reconcile to God, but they start reconciling with each other. And guess what, church? God wants us to do the same thing. We should commit to reconciliation with others and helping others to be reconciled with God. 
See, in the book of Corinthians, Paul tells us that God has given us, his believers, the ministry of reconciliation. He calls us Christ's ambassador to share the message of reconciliation with others. See, Christ did more than just take away our sins so that God can forgive us. He removed the barrier and distance between us and God so that we can enter into an intimate relationship with him. And since Christ did it for us, guess what? He wants us to do the same for others. See, listen to this. Our response to God's saving grace and gift of the Holy Spirit is expressed in our response to others. See, the Bible shows that broken relationships are the root of poverty, marginalization, and conflict. And it doesn't take a genius to see that in 2018, broken relationships continue to plague our society. If we're to the point that we cringe at the thought of having a conversation with a Democrat or a Republican, if we're to the point where we go into a restaurant and we see a waiter or a waitress who is gay and we cringe at the thought of even sitting at that table, if we're to the point where we go into Starbucks and the person who's about to serve us is part of the LGBTQ community and we become uncomfortable, we need to ask ourselves if we suffer from arrested development. See, when we grasp this amazing truth that nothing is too difficult for God, we suddenly become world-changing people. Why? Because you'll no longer stress, be stressed about your ability or inability to change the world. You realize it's the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Satan may tell you that you're not good enough or even smart enough or strong enough to pursue reconciliation. He might even remind you of your past and your failures. But remember that the devil is a liar and the father of all lies. When he reminds you of your past, you can remind him of your future. See, listen, God sees you as a champion. And he wants to use you and use your life to change the world for his glory. Your job description is not merely to survive but to heal the sick, raise the dead, and to cast out demons and use that power of the Holy Spirit to reconcile people to each other and to reconcile them to Christ. This can only be done by tapping into the exceedingly abundantly power of God that is within each and every one of us believers. And God just asks us to make ourselves willing and available to him and as you believe his promises and you submit your life to him, we as the church of God can do the impossible. Yes. See, when we look at this portion of this doxology, remember, a doxology is our expression of praise and our expression of worship. And so at first blush, you look at where this doxology is, and it's like, eh, this just doesn't fit. But when you begin to peel back the onion, it show, God shows us something interesting. See, doxology should always come after theology. 
And what Paul did, what God did was he gave Paul a revelation that expanded his knowledge of theology because theology is the understanding of God. And when Paul looked at what God had revealed to him and said, Jews and Gentiles are now being reconciled to one another? There's no man who can do that. That had to be the power of God. So once Paul received that theology, he busted out into doxology because it's revelation that accentuates our praise. And the more we learn about God, the more we want to worship God. That's why theology and doxology always goes together. But the problem is, if we're not focused on the Holy Spirit, we get an imbalance. And if you have too much theology, which is the knowledge of God, and not enough doxology, you're too heady, you're too smart, you understand all the theology, but yet you don't want to give God praise and worship. Theology without doxology leads to legalism. In addition, some of us, all we want to do is praise and worship. And when we have too much doxology, without theology, it turns into idolatry. Because we think that it is us who has the power because all we got to do is praise. But God wants us to have both. He calls us to have a balance of both theology and doxology. So when we review that in the scripture in the book of Ephesians, it's very clear why Paul ended that portion of his letter with God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We serve a mighty God. And the more I know about him, the more I want to praise him. The more he reveals himself to me, the more I want to worship. Because it's a balance of theology and doxology. And when we understand that, and the fact that God can do it for the Jews and Gentiles, <laughs> he can do it for us. God is a God of reconciliation. Pursue it as often as possible. Don't get to the point. Let me say this. Let me get emails now. I don't care what side of the controversy you're on, okay? But let me be very clear. Don't get to the point where we allow what the flag represents to stop us remembering what God has reconciled. God has reconciled us together, Christians. Don't let something as simple as the symbol of a flag cause us to undo what the cross has done. We have to focus on reconciliation because when we don't, we lose our witness. If I'm not seeking reconciliation, how can I tell someone about the goodness of Jesus Christ? Reconciliation with each other ultimately leads, ultimately leads to reconciliation with God. And God wants us to pursue reconciliation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
for this opportunity to receive manna from on high. And God, we thank you that in addition to opening up our understanding to your theology, it leads us to doxology as we give you praise and worship for your revelation. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us continues to align ourselves with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when we do, we will pursue reconciliation. And God, we will then reconcile with others and help them reconcile with you. God, your desire is that we be used to help seek and save those which are lost. Help us not to lose sight of that over the color of someone's skin, their sexuality, their heritage, and their religion, but help us to use words of encouragement to share the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus, so that we can help reconcile them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.